You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. Late in April, a bright day came, a brisk wind blew, tips of pine trees glistened in the sunshine, but the ground was still soft and soggy. In the afternoon of April 26th, as I was catching up on the entries in my notebook, a burst of excitement drew my attention. An orderly dashed up, handed a paper to our officers, and rode on. Regiment to break camp and move out at daybreak. What scurrying to get everything ready? Usual utensils, eight days' rations, crackers or hard bread, bacon and raw pickled pork wrapped in paper, coffee, flour, brown sugar, salt, each tied up in a small cloth bag, like a marble bag. Cartridge belts and boxes were loaded, twenty or more rounds of ammunition carried in clothing pockets. At daybreak, pup tents were unbuttoned from the roof of one shack, rolled with the gum blanket, and the bundle strapped across the shoulders above the haversack. Gather up everything you want. We're not coming back. Frying pans and coffee pots clinked and rattled. Knapsacks were stuffed with extra clothing, including sometimes an overcoat. Some of the boys looked like moving vans on legs. They took the gall-darndest loads. It was about 5.30. The world was taking on the peaceful dawn look. My corps went out first. A few pieces of artillery lumbered past. Then my regiment started out. Out on the Warrington Road, in the general direction of the Rappahannock, upstream. I was puzzled. Lee and Fredericksburg were to the south. I paid little attention, though, for I was glad to get away from the monotony of camp life and I felt safe with such a display of force. Chilling mists began to creep over the valley during the afternoon. Clouds hovered lower and lower, and streaks of muggy fog. A swishing rain set in. Knapsacks, overcoats, blankets became soaked and heavy. We slogged along, wearily and silently. Here it goes! Pearly King threw away his overcoat, and lively cheers broke out. Here goes mine. Jake twirled his soggy coat above his head, and with a fling he threw it to the edge of the road. Many threw knapsacks, skillets, cups, coats into the bordering woods. Nathaniel Green threw away the twenty rounds of ammunition he carried in his pockets. I emptied my sagging pockets, as many others did. Shouts and cheers arose to the rear of us when we resumed the march shortly after a rest at Hartwood Church. Our boys were singing the Battle Hymn of the Republic, and we picked up the chorus. It's General Hooker! General Hooker's coming! Our line swayed to the soggy berms to let the general and his staff pass. They were riding fast. Mud splashed in brown arcs in every direction. 
our boys threw their caps high in the air, shouted hurrahs to the general. Hooker's bright blue eyes sparkled with pride and confidence. He waved his black hat high overhead. His thick blonde hair jolted in rhythm to the galloping of his horse. Private William B. Southerton, 75th Ohio Infantry, McLean's Brigade. everyone. Thanks for tuning in to episode number 259 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Welcome to the podcast. As y'all recall, we started our Chancellorsville story arc last week and ended the show by talking about Hooker's plan for the upcoming campaign. It was actually a pretty good plan, a great plan even. And we closed that episode with Hooker's boast. My plans are perfect, and when I start to carry them out, may God have mercy on General Lee, for I will have none. As we said last time, Hooker had mapped out a strong cavalry raid looping far beyond Lee's rear, designed to sever the rebel army's supply line, and cut Lee off from Richmond. Once that bold dash into the enemy's rear was well underway and wreaking havoc in Lee's rear areas, Hooker would lead three corps of swiftly marching Federal infantry upstream from Fredericksburg. They would cross the Rappahannock and Rapidan rivers, and that fast-moving force would then sweep down through the wilderness and fall upon Lee's left flank and rear, while the rest of the Army of the Potomac's infantry, led by John Sedgwick, crossed the Rappahannock at or just below Fredericksburg. A supremely confident Hooker expected that Robert E. Lee, caught between such powerful forces, would have just two choices open to him. The rebel commander could either stand fast and fight a losing battle at Fredericksburg, or Lee could try to slip out of the trap and withdraw southward toward Richmond. But if he did that, he would find his line of retreat blocked by the Federal cavalry. Hooker set his plan in motion on April 13th when George Stoneman led the thousands of Union cavalry up the Rappahannock. Hooker had given Stoneman detailed instructions, telling him, Let your watchword be fight, and let all your orders be fight, fight, fight. It devolves upon you, General, to take the initiative in the forward movement of this grand army, and on you and your noble command must depend in a great measure the extent and brilliancy of our success. Stoneman's horsemen made good time that first day, despite the cantankerous pack mules which were supposed to replace the Federal Cavalry's cumbersome wagon trains. You see, in preparing for the movement, someone had hit upon the idea of using mules to carry the column's supplies and equipment, and in that way the fast-moving cavalry wouldn't be slowed down by or have to worry about protecting the slow-moving and vulnerable wagons. Well, it might have sounded like a good idea, but... Yeah, but... 
In the 16th Pennsylvania Cavalry, a trooper detailed to help keep the mules moving said later the whole effort was, quote, a living curiosity. The uncooperative mules that Yankee wrote, quote, did very much as they please. When a mule wanted to rid himself of his load, he would resort to many devices. He would rub against the trees, fences, or against another mule, and when all these failed, he would lie down and roll. This last resort generally did the business. Oats, corn, hard bread, pots, kettles, pans, etc. would be strewn along the road. Frequently these animals would take to kicking. A mule can kick the highest of any animal of his size, by all odds. I do not remember how many times we were compelled to repack these pesky varmints' loads, but patience deserted pretty early in the march. Soon after that, luck deserted, too, because just as Ambrose Burnside's move upstream had got bogged down in the mud in January, the Federal Cavalry here in April now got caught in the rain. While most of the Federal Cavalry proceeded up the Rappahannock at a leisurely pace, Stoneman sent ahead a brigade under Colonel Benjamin Grimes Davis. Davis's men were to cross the river at Sulphur Springs, more than 30 miles northwest of Fredericksburg, and then double back down the Rappahannock to drive off the Confederate pickets at Freeman's and Beverly Fords so the rest of Stoneman's force could cross undisturbed. Grimes Davis and his brigade successfully crossed the Rappahannock and beat back Confederate detachments guarding the fords. But the rest of Stoneman, Stoneman's force was slow to arrive at the crossing points, and then the skies opened up. As the rain fell, the Rappahannock rose alarmingly. Davis was forced to hustle back across the river to avoid having his small force trapped on the enemy's side of the swollen stream. As it was, several men and horses were drowned trying to negotiate the raging waters. On April 15th, Hooker, certain that his orders had been carried out, wrote Lincoln that regardless of the storm, Stoneman's troopers had crossed the river. That evening, however, Hooker was forced to revise his optimistic report and informed the president that only one division of horsemen had crossed. In fact, at that point in time, no Federal cavalrymen remained on the far side of the river. Despite Hooker's initial positive reports, Lincoln had already sized up the situation at once, for by this time in the war, his ability to detect a fiasco in the making was finely tuned. Late on April 15th, he sent a message to Hooker saying, quote, General Stoneman is not moving rapidly enough to make the expedition come to anything. He has now been out three days, two of which were unusually fair weather, and all three without hindrance from the enemy, and yet he is not 25 miles from where he started. I greatly fear it is another failure already. Well, it was. The rain continued to fall, and the river remained impassable for the better part of two weeks. Captain William Candler of Hooker's staff wrote on April 24th that, quote, The longer it rains, the harder it seems to come down. 
everyone is moving around in an aimless, nervous way, looking at the clouds and then at the ground, and in knots trying to convince themselves that it is going to clear off and they will be able to move day after tomorrow. Hey y'all, spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley, not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So, if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. What's something you learned in history class that you feel wasn't the whole truth? Better yet, what's something you didn't learn at all that was omitted completely? That's what I like to call redacted history. I believe that all history, no matter how good or bad, needs to be told. There are wars, massacres, battles, and entire historical events that are just not in our school's history books. Have you ever heard of Mary Bowser? I didn't think so. My name is Andre White, the host of the Redacted History Podcast, the place where history's forgotten events, heroes, and villains get their story told, one episode at a time. So come huddle around the campfire with me and get ready to hear the stories that you were robbed of. And get comfortable. We're going to be here a while. The Redacted History Podcast. Real history never dies. Stream the Redacted History Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. In fact, the weather did clear the next day, April 25th. Brisk winds started to dry the muddy roads, and cloudless skies promised an end to the rainy spell. At this point, Hooker decided to modify his original plan. The Federal Cavalry would go ahead with its mission to get behind the rebels and sever Lee's supply line and cut his communications with Richmond. But now, instead of waiting until Stoneman's horsemen had completed their mission— Hooker would start his infantry's daring flank march at the same time the cavalry set out. Hooker was still supremely confident. His only fear was that Lee would slip away before the Army of the Potomac could smash the rebels. Hooker wrote to Lincoln, saying, I am apprehensive that he will retire from before me the moment I should succeed in crossing the river, and thus escape being seriously crippled. If that happened, though, Hooker still hoped that the Federal cavalry, looping behind Lee's army, would, quote, hold him and check his retreat until I can fall on his rear. According to Hooker's new plan, he would move up the Rappahannock with the 5th, 11th, and 12th Corps, bypassing banks and U.S. fords, which were guarded by the Confederates. The three corps would instead cross at Kelly's Ford, 20 miles upstream from Fredericksburg. 
Then Oliver Howard's 11th Corps and Henry Slocum's 12th Corps would head south and cross the Rapidan at Germana Ford. George Meade's 5th Corps would double back toward Fredericksburg, crossing the Rapidan at Eli's Ford and driving the Confederates back from Banks and U.S. Fords. This would open the way for reinforcements, in the form of most of Darius Couch's 2nd Corps, to cross the Rappahannock, and would also considerably shorten Hooker's line of communications for the flanking force, since messages and supplies wouldn't have to go all the way up and around by way of Kelly's Ford, but could instead be sent directly over the river at Banks and U.S. Fords. To distract the rebels from that threat to their left flank, Hooker planned a series of feints and deceptions. Sedgwick would lead his own 6th Corps and John Reynolds' 1st Corps across the Rappahannock below Fredericksburg to fake a major attack against the Confederate right. To confuse Robert E. Lee even further, Daniel Sickles' 3rd Corps and a 2nd Corps division led by John Gibbon would temporarily stay put in their camps across from Fredericksburg. The Federal troops began their movement on the morning of April 27th. Years later, looking back on the moment, Hooker remembered, quote, I felt at the beginning of the campaign that I had 80 chances in 100 of being successful. The forces making up Hooker's fast-moving flanking column were those Federals whose winter encampments were most distant from the rebel position at Fredericksburg. Simply because of their postings then, the troops of the 5th, 11th, and 12th Corps would make up the column that was to march far upriver to Kelly's Ford, cross the Rappahannock, and then the Rapidan, then come in on the flank and rear of Lee's army. Had he more choice in the matter or been able to shift his forces around without tipping off the enemy, Hooker surely would have assembled this flanking column differently. The 5th was a veteran corps with a proven leader in Meade, but Howard's 11th and Slocum's 12th Corps were the stepchildren of the Army of the Potomac. They came into the Army by way of John Pope's much-maligned Army of Virginia after Pope's thrashing at Second Bull Run. Although that was seven and a half months ago, neither corps felt a sense of belonging in the Army of the Potomac. Slocum's 12th Corps was the second smallest in the Army of the Potomac, and during the winter's crisis had the highest percentage of deserters of any corps. Had he been able to, Hooker would likely have found a less demanding role for the 12th. He would, without a doubt, have assigned a different role to the 11th Corps, it was the smallest in the army, with its three divisions averaging barely 4,300 men. Its numerous German-speaking regiments were regarded with deep distrust and suspicion by the rest of the Army of the Potomac, and many, even in their own corps, referred to them by the slur, Dutchmen. To speed the march, the artillery was cut back, with the three corps taking only nine of their assigned 20 batteries. Ambulances were limited to two per division. The reserve of small arms ammunition would be packed on mules. The men would carry eight days' rations. As Hooker viewed it, speed was all important. 
His plan gave the flanking column just 36 hours to reach Kelly's Ford, and then the issue would be how swiftly those troops could march downriver and turn Lee's left. On April 27th, Private Justice Silliman of the 17th Connecticut, 11th Corps, wrote, Monday morning was bright and pleasant, though rather too cool for comfort. The boys appeared in good spirits and ready for the march. It was the first day, the first day at last, of Fighting Joe Hooker's spring campaign. Otis Howard's 11th Corps led the flanking column, and the first of his three divisions was on the road shortly after sunrise. Slocum's 12th Corps followed Howard's men, and Meade's 5th Corps, with the day's shortest march, didn't start until mid-morning. The security measures imposed by Hooker, including posting guards at every house along the routes of march, were so successful that General Lee hadn't a clue that three federal corps were marching upriver. On the morning of Tuesday, April 28th, the men of the flanking column were roused well before dawn by their officers. At 4 a.m., the 11th Corps, again designated to take the lead, started off. In late morning, it began to rain, not hard enough to turn the road to mud, but steadily enough to soak every man's load and make it that much heavier, and most men quickly began to divest themselves of overcoats, cooking implements, extra ammunition, and sundry other items. Nevertheless, at 6 p.m. that evening, Federals from the 154th New York in canvas pontoon boats splashed across the Rappahannock and surprised the handful of Confederate pickets at Kelly's Ford. By 10.30 that night, a pontoon bridge had been completed and Union cavalry clattered across it to the far shore. General Hooker himself was on hand to observe the scene as the first 11th Corps soldiers then tramped across the span. So far, the first 36 hours of Hooker's campaign had gone precisely as Fighting Joe had planned it. Hooker felt confident that he had stolen a long march on Robert E. Lee. Up until now, Hooker had kept his plans a closely held secret, only letting his generals know as much as they needed to in order to carry out the march upriver to Kelly's Ford. Now, however, he revealed to the commanders of the flanking column that the target of the second phase of their movement was Chancellorsville, a crossroads clearing to the southeast in the desolate expanse of scrub pine, oak, and dense underbrush known as the wilderness. The new set of orders read, The general desires that not a moment be lost until our troops are established at or near Chancellorsville. From that moment, all will be ours. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is Chancellorsville, 1863, The Souls of the Brave by Ernest B. Ferguson. Don't forget you can find all of our book recommendations at the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. Also at the website, you can start the process of joining the Strawfoot Brigade, like Mac, John M., 
Dan, Ben, Jean, and John G. have done recently. Earlier today, we released members episode number 78, Deadly Clash at Thompson Station. So we hope all the Strawfoot Brigade members enjoy listening to that show. As we remind you that the music you hear at the beginning and end of every show is from the song Midnight on the Water, and we use it with the kind permission of Spiritwood Music. We'll also remind you that with the holidays rapidly approaching, you can find some lovely Christmas music from Spiritwood Music that will make your holiday that much more merrier. Yep, uh, and if you do purchase and download their music, that's also a nice thank you to them for allowing us to use their song on the podcast. Anyway, thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Rich and I do hope you'll join us again next time when we'll continue with the story of the Battle of Chancellorsville. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.